I invite you to turn your Bibles back to Philippians chapter 3. The year is 42 BC. Julius Caesar, the great Roman emperor, was murdered in the Roman Senate two years prior. And the Roman Empire is still still mired in a civil war between Caesar's murderers and Caesar's allies. There are a lot of names that are being tossed around at this time. It's just easier for me to think about them as Caesar's murderers or Caesar's friends. Well, Caesar's allies, Mark, Antony, and Octavian, have pursued the armies of Brutus and Cassius into northern Greece, hoping to bring justice to Caesar's murderers. And after some strategic maneuvering, the armies joined in battle twice on the plains outside of the town of Philippi. You can see here on the screen, there's a map there. Philippi is highlighted. The the block on the top is zoomed in. Just outside of Philippi, there were two battles. And it is here that Caesar's allies defeat Caesar's murderers and end the civil war. And after this battle, a significant event takes place that actually helps us to better understand the book of Philippians and better understand the book of Acts, as Paul ministered to the saints at Philippi. After the war, the winning generals decommissioned several units and let army veterans settle in Philippi. And as an incentive, they issued a decree declaring Philippi to be a Roman colony. Now that may not seem like a big deal to us, but when a city received the title of colony, it became self-governed, free from taxation, and its occupants received Roman citizenship. This was a big deal. This new designation changed the city of Philippi. It it, it became a little Rome, an outpost of Rome, we could say, on foreign soil, full of Roman citizens. They weren't a Greek city any longer. They were now an official Roman colony. And since Roman citizenship was a valuable commodity, the people would have been proud to be Roman citizens. They would have been excited about this. And in fact, history shows us that whenever a city became a colony, the people there were eager to be cultural Romans, dressing like Romans, even using the same language, Latin, as Romans, and observing Roman holidays. This is the history of Philippi, and when the Apostle Paul passed through the city about 100 years later, these events were still fresh in people's minds. So when Paul sat down to write the letter to the Philippians, he could borrow the language of Philippi being a Roman colony, apply it to the church, and everyone would understand exactly what Paul meant. He uses this word for Roman colony twice in the letter of Philippians. The first time is in Philippians 1.27 when he writes, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. The word conduct means to live as citizens of a colony. Just like the Philippians were to behave like an outpost of Rome and represent Rome's interest in that area of the world, so also believers are to behave as an outpost of heaven, seeking to advance heavenly values, to live as heavenly citizens during our stay on earth. The second time Paul uses this word is in chapter 3, verse 20, that we'll get to in a moment. And he writes this, for our citizenship is in heaven. And the key word is citizenship. Just like the Philippians were citizens of Rome living on foreign soil, believers are citizens of heaven living on foreign soil. 
when we came to faith in Jesus, we received a new identity. In fact, we received many new identities. There are about 20 of them that we are called by in the New Testament. And one of them is that we are citizens of heaven. And just as Philippi's new status as a Roman colony changed everything about them, our identity as citizens of heaven should change everything about us. And that's not an exaggeration. Now we are citizens of heaven living as a colony on earth, so we should live for our real homeland. Because we come today as a church with different nationalities, different backgrounds, maybe even different citizenships here on earth. But what unites us is the fact that we have a heavenly citizenship that draws us together and that spurs us toward our true homeland. But there's a problem because we become way too attached to this life. We fall in love with the country of our residence The things of this world easily distract us and even ensnare us at times. We have to ask ourselves how much of what we want in life is frankly unnecessary or unspiritual. How much of my desires and my goals for my life have really no bearing on my eternal home? And if we honestly answer these questions, we realize we we don't live for heaven like we ought. We are, though, citizens of another country, which makes us strangers and pilgrims or even exiles during our time here on earth. And so we should live for our real home, our heavenly home, because that's where our citizenship truly belongs. In our text today, Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 through 21, calls us to live consistently with our identity. It exhorts us to know who we are, and then to live appropriately based on that. How do citizens of heaven live for their real home? Well, these verses show us three ways that we do that. The first is found in verse 17. Would you look there with me? Let's read this verse together. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk just as you have us for a pattern. The first thing citizens of heaven do to live for home is they follow godly examples. And in this verse, there are two parallel commands. Imitate Paul and follow other godly examples. You see them in your text. So let's break those down one by one. First is we are called to imitate Paul. Now that may seem a little funny to us because we're living 1900, 2000 years after Paul. Obviously, when the Philippians received this letter, they could imitate Paul. They knew Paul. Paul had led some of them to Christ personally. But by doing this, by writing it this way, Paul is calling all believers to be fellow imitators of Christ with him. It's not just the word imitate Christ. It's the word to be a fellow imitator of Christ. So in other words, we join with Paul in pursuing Christ while at the same time looking to the apostle as the inspired example of the Christian's walk. Did you realize that Paul is the model for all of our Christian faith? Obviously, we worship the Lord Jesus, but if we're looking for one example of someone who pursued Christ, we look to the Apostle Paul. One of my professors in seminary said this, quote, Paul is himself the ideal model of the Christian life. Paul is the only writer whom the Holy Spirit directs to say, follow me. 
in our Christian lives, we are ascending the slope of our race toward heaven and toward Christ, and we all see Paul's back further up the slope. Well, what are we to imitate about Paul? If you look at the text, there are a few verses prior. The context, we are to imitate Paul's pursuit of Christ as the previous verses explain. Because these commands in verse 17 are really just the practical outworking of everything Paul has said in chapter 3 to this point. He shows us in verses 7 through 11 that to gain Christ's righteousness and be found in him, one must give up everything else. He counts, Paul does, everything else as loss so that he can gain Christ and be found in Christ to be united to him. Yet this new status in this union with Christ does not permit Paul to slack off spiritually. In verses 12 and 11, he reminds us three different times with three phrases, I have not arrived spiritually. I have not accomplished the goal that I set out to do, which is to be found faithful to Christ. So he says in verses 13 and 14 that he presses on after Christ that he runs after Christ like he never has before. He runs after Christ with single-minded focus by forgetting what's behind and straining to what's before. And then he says in verse 15 that if we want to be mature, we will think that way too. What are we to do then if we are spiritually mature? The answer is to follow Paul's example of pursuing Christ, which is exactly what he says to do here in verse 17. Imitate me, follow me. But Paul isn't the only one whom we imitate. He also writes in verse 17 to imitate the faith of other mature believers. That that places us now in our context, in our century, in our location. We should be looking out for other believers who model the Christian life. We need spiritual examples and spiritual mentors in our life to encourage us in the faith. And Paul shares in verse 17 two steps to help us to be discerning about who to look to as examples. Because I think we would all admit, we don't want to follow everybody. We want to be selective and discerning about our examples. First, Paul says, observe their way of life. Paul says to note those who so walk. And the word note carries the idea of observing something carefully for the purpose of imitation. If you've ever learned to do a skill with your hands, you've probably been told to pay attention to the instructor or note what your teacher is doing here. I do this with my boys all the time as we go do sports things. Uh, I've been taking them to the driving range, which is hilarious because by the time we're done, there's like 100 golf balls about seven feet in front of us. And I tell them, okay, watch what I'm doing. Watch how I grip the club. Watch my swing. You want to, your feet need to be here. Or when we're playing baseball, hold the bat this way. Watch how I turn. Paul calls us to take the same careful approach when looking for spiritual examples. We observe how others live, and then second, we compare their example to scriptural teaching. So we don't just pick the the most charismatic example. We don't pick the one that, that is most attractive to us. We pick the ones that are most faithful to scripture. Paul writes, as you have us for an example... If someone is not walking according to the pattern set out in Scripture, don't pattern your life on them. Hebrews 13.7 helps us here. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. The author of Hebrews is saying, weigh or ponder what their lifestyle will result in. And if you don't want to end up like them, don't imitate them. This requires discernment. So what what kind of example are you? 
Because I think it's very easy and, and kind of safe for us to say, well, we need to have godly examples and you should find one. That's true. It certainly needs to start there. But let's get a little bit more convicting. Let's ask ourselves, what kind of an example am I? The reality is someone is watching your faith. And that extends even to the youngest people in the room, even the elementary school age children. People are watching you. Many of you have younger siblings or you have friends in your grade or your team or your group. But those of us who are older, if our spiritual walk is not something that others would want to imitate, then, then what needs to change? Why couldn't we come alongside another believer and say, hey, I, I'm not perfect. I depend on the Lord's grace, and I, I need daily grace for him, for, for help, but, but let's go walk the Christian life together. What do you need to grow in so that others would not be led astray? What kind of example are you? And I think that question then underscores the importance of the local church because the local church, our church, we're talking about Red Rocks Baptist Church now, we are God's chosen place to live in community with one another. And there are many local churches all over the globe for this purpose. Every single one of us should have other people here at Red Rocks that we should look to as an example for our faith. And if you say, well, all my examples are somewhere else. All my examples are outside the church. That's, that's fine. That's great. But the reality is we are a church. We should be helping one another. We should be following the example of our mature leaders and our mature older saints. However, you can't follow someone if you're not connected to them. You can't really follow someone else's example if you never see them. And that's one of the reasons why faithful attendance in the local church is so important. And in a city like Denver, where I think the God of this land is the God of recreation, it's very easy just to kind of come in and come out and be faithful a couple times a month. That's not what the Bible is calling us to do. The Bible is calling us to live in such a way that people could pattern their lives on the way we walk with Christ. That's a high bar. That may mean then that you need to prayerfully consider membership in our church. That may mean you need to prayerfully consider how you can step into a home prayer group like we just talked about a few moments ago so that you can have relationships with other people. And, and yes, sometimes we hear that there's accountability in joining as members. Absolutely there's accountability. But in Scripture, the funny thing about accountability is it's never given in the context of being a liability. It's always in the context of being an asset. So yes, there is accountability and relationships. And ultimately, where this is leading, I think, is, is intergenerational ministry is so important. Within our local church, older believers should be setting an example for younger ones. Mature believers should be leading immature ones. Older believers should be leading newer believers. And, and you don't have to be past the age of 75 to be considered an older believer. I prefer the term seasoned. Or we could even say mature, okay? So, you say, well, I'm not 75 yet. That way, no one, I'm not an example. No, that's not the, the scriptural way of thinking. You know, my family experiences this every week, and I know for many of you, you feel the same way. Each week, my kids walk into Sunday school, and they're in three separate classes, and they have people in their 40s, 60s, and 70s teach them. That's a good thing. I really like that. My wife and I regularly spend time with people in literally every decade of life, from teens, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and even 80s. That's a good thing. That's the way the local church is meant to be. 
and, and now what I'm about to say next, I want to be really gentle because it, it, it could be uh, misinterpreted. Many of you have unsafe family members that are a burden on your heart. Adult children that grew up in church that don't walk with the Lord anymore. Maybe parents that have never come to faith in Christ and they're in their older years resisting. A brother or a sister who, who knows what to do and, and has rejected the faith. I think we all have people that are, we're thinking of. Why can't the local church be a place where we have new spiritual families formed? Why can't we replace, and, and, and yes, I understand, we can't replace a son or daughter, so I'm not saying you totally swap them out, but why shouldn't we be looking for spiritual parents or spiritual children or spiritual siblings in the context of the local church? The church can be, and I think should be based on Scripture, a beautiful place where spiritual families are birthed, where people in their 70s fellowship with people in their 30s and their children, where people in their 20s are coming alongside people in their 40s and 50s and saying, can you be my adopted aunt and uncle? Because the closer a church moves toward intergenerational ministry, the tighter the fellowship becomes. It's difficult to have a spiritual family if everybody's the same age intergenerational ministry can be life-changing for all parties involved. And one of the things that we are blessed with in our church is having a variety of ages. I mean, just look around. There are people in every decade of life in this room right now, all the way up until 100. That's a really good thing. Not many churches have that. So let's praise God for what he's given to us, which is each other, and follow one another's godly examples. Now back in Philippians 3, we see the importance of following godly examples because of what Paul says next, and it's really simple. He says, don't follow evil examples. Citizens of heaven resist worldly influences. This is verses 18 and 19. Let's read it. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame who set their mind on earthly things. Paul primarily addresses the reality of ungodly examples being all around us. And I think we all understand we shouldn't be following the sinful example of of worldly people. So let's broaden it just a bit for our time here. Let's make sure that we are not following the influence of the unsafe culture around us. Because if we are going to live like citizens of heaven, we have to resist the ungodly culture and its influence on us. Notice how Paul talks about these people. Did you catch it? He says to them, and he pauses what he's about to say. He, like, he takes like a detour from the main thought, and he says, of whom I've told you often, and now tell you even weeping. Why would Paul weep over these people? Could it be that they were formerly interested in Christ or even identified as believers, but now they clearly and vehemently deny the Lord Jesus? And if that's the case, we have to remember that not everyone who claims to be a Christian actually models the truth, especially as we look out in our broader culture. There are a lot of cultural Christians from all sorts of celebrity churches that claim to be spiritual, that claim the name of Christ, and their lifestyle, their words don't line up with Scripture. We have to be on our guard. Citizens of heaven resist ungodly influences for three reasons, Paul says. First, because ungodly influences stand opposed to God. You say, well, that's pretty simple. Exactly. But he doesn't let this one slide by. 
There are enemies of God and there are enemies of the cross of Christ. And the word enemy is not just like on the other side and and you're going to play sports against each other. This is the idea of hostility and hatred and battle and warfare. These people demonstrated their hostility toward the cross of Jesus by the way that they acted. And, And let's be really clear, when you become a believer in Christ, you cannot be an enemy of God. That's part of the great exchange of the gospel, that we are no longer enemies, but sons and daughters. But James chapter 4, 4 reminds us that when we start living like the world, we can start to live like God's enemies. James says, adulterers and adulteresses, that's spiritually speaking. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity, is, is battle with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Earlier in the book of James, he says, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. The fact is, we cannot claim the name of Christ and be friends with the world. We can't do it. That, That makes us a son or a daughter who's actually living more like the enemy than his own father. Why would we want to be in league with people who hate God? But that's exactly what we do when we yield to these ungodly influences. So citizens of heaven, let's resist them. Second, ungodly influences lead to destruction. This is the destiny of all those who hate the cross. So how far do we want to walk on the path of destruction? If this is their end result, are we okay with walking a little bit after them? That doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? Like Hebrews 13, 7 says, we should consider the outcome of someone's way of life before imitating them. If their outcome is destruction, are they worth following? Third, because ungodly influences love the things of this life. To resist this, the citizens of heaven that we are, we we, we must... It's like we have to plug our ears to the siren song of the world around us, the song, the attractions that that pull us in that, that we have no power over because they're so attractive. Our flesh, the world, even the devil and his forces, John 1 John 5 19, they attempt to get us to give our hearts and affections to the things of this life. Notice in in the text here in verse 19, three descriptions of these enemies that show their love for earthly things. First, they worship their appetites. Paul says their God is their belly, the object of, the worship, of their worship, the deity that they bow to, the supreme being worthy of their devotion is their appetites. Does that not describe our culture? Whatever we want is what we worship. Our gods are simply our greatest lust. And our culture not only worships their appetites, but people have now started identifying as and defining themselves by their appetites. A very clear example of this is the sexual revolution in all its various forms. LGBTQ plus people identify, that's what they call it, they identify as one of these sinful practices. Their deviant sexual appetite is their identity. Their God is their sexuality. They worship their appetites. Second, they glory in their shame. God designed humans with a natural shame when we violate his order. But when people throw off God, as Romans 1 says, and suppress the truth about him, one of the results is that God gives them over to a reprobate mind. And a reprobate mind is a mind that says, what is shameful? I love. And not only I love, I celebrate. 
A reprobate mind celebrates the very things that they should be utterly ashamed of, things that shouldn't be spoken of in public. This also describes our culture, does it not? The things that should make us ashamed are the very things that they love. Why is it that our secular media and our secular elites are trying to wait trying to take away the shame from abortion. There are headlines every couple of months. New study shows that abortion is not shameful. Well, why do they have to keep saying that? Because it's an inherently shameful thing to murder the unborn. That's why. The human conscience bears witness to this, and no matter how many social elites tell the public that it isn't shameful, it is shameful, and it ought not be celebrated. Abortion is a wicked, evil, immoral practice. We could lump euthanasia into the same thing. They're so shameful they shouldn't be talked about, let alone practiced. And yet in our culture today, we have people celebrating these as fundamental rights akin to the freedom of speech. We have political parties making abortion the overriding issue in the upcoming election. That's what it looks like when a culture glories in their shame. God help us. Third, they set their mind on earthly things. Paul writes at the end of verse 19, who set their mind on earthly things. And this describes the mentality of ungodly people. They only care about the things of this life. They only fix their minds on pursuing what they can see or smell or taste or touch or experience. This stands just in direct contrast to what our mindset is as believers. Colossians 3, 1 and 2. If you were then raised with Christ, and the implication is you were at salvation, Then seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. The King James Version translates verse 2, set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth. The definition of worldliness is setting your hearts on things below. That's what it is to be a worldly Christian, to set your heart on things below. And we have to be honest, this temptation is strong and attractive, is it not? We feel the pressure of keeping up with everyone around us. And so we start to embrace the cultural mindset instead of living as citizens of heaven. And this doesn't happen in one fell swoop. We don't walk out one day and come back just, yeah, I'm I'm a worldly Christian now. It erodes over time, does it not? Our convictions erode by the pressure around us and by the attraction of our world. We step by step walk away. Before long, we realize we're carnal, we're worldly, we're ungodly, even if we name the name of Christ. You see, there's a great divide in what our culture wants and what Jesus calls us to do. Our culture teaches us to want comfort. Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. I want influence. Jesus says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. I don't want to suffer for my faith. Jesus says if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. I don't want stress or hardship, Jesus says. In this world, you will have tribulation. I want prosperity. I want the American dream. Jesus says the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. I want success and I want fame. I want my life to be a successful thing. Jesus says, what will it profit a man if he gain the whole world? and lose his soul. If we want to follow Christ 
and live for our real home, we have to identify where we feel these influences. Because we're not immune to them. We're flesh and blood. We live in, a, in an ungodly culture. And we have to be attuned and aware of how the culture is starting to impact us. So identify where these influences allure us and tempt us most strongly. And then we ask God for grace to believe the truth about these things, to believe that they will not lead to satisfaction, to to believe that they will not give us peace and joy and hope because those things are only found in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have to believe truth. And then, with God's help, we replace these earthly desires and habits with heavenly desires and habits. And how do, we, how do we replace these things with heavenly desires? Do we just go from wanting the gold of this earth to the, to the pavement of heaven because there are streets of gold? I don't think that's it. How do we take these earthly desires and mortify them and kill them and, and cultivate instead by the Spirit's power heavenly desires and habits? And I think it's the third thing that Paul says. He calls us as citizens of heaven to eagerly await our final redemption to look ahead, to live looking up. Heavenly-minded citizens, in contrast to the enemies of the cross, are not earthly-minded. They are heavenly-minded. Verses 20 and 21. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which, which, excuse me, we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Citizens of heaven eagerly await their final redemption. That's how our desires are transformed. Citizens of heaven who know that their home is really, truly in heaven will eagerly await glorification, or what I've got on the screen here, final redemption. At salvation, we were justified or we were redeemed. In this life, we are continually being sanctified. We are going through the process of being made more conformed to the image of Christ. And then when Christ returns sometime in the future, we will be glorified. Have you ever noticed in Philippians 3 that Paul describes the ins- this entire salvation process here? In verses 7 through 11, Paul describes positional righteousness. He doesn't have his own righteousness, he says, but he suffers the loss of everything to to gain Christ and gain his righteousness and be found in him to be positionally right with God, to become a son or a daughter by faith. And in verses 12 through 19, Paul then models for us and calls us also to pursue righteousness as we become more like Christ, to press on toward things above to lay aside the things that are behind. And now in verses 20 and 21, the natural end of our salvation is described. It's described as our final righteousness when we will finally be transformed into the full image of Jesus Christ. Salvation is the story of what Jesus has done for us, is doing in us, and will do to us. That's salvation. And notice who's the hero of that story. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Believers who have been redeemed in the past and are pursuing Christ in the present will anticipate their final glorification in the future. Why? Because that is their destiny as citizens of heaven. That is where we are going. As the old gospel song says, this world's not my home, I'm just passing through. My treasure's laid up there, somewhere beyond the blue. Verses 20 and 21 teach us three things that will happen at this final redemption. First, 
most significantly, Jesus will return from heaven. Jesus saved us by his death on the cross and resurrection from the grave. And the Bible teaches us then that he will, as Hebrews 9.28 says, he will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. You see, when Jesus shows up again, he's not coming to atone for sin because he did that once for all in the past. The next time he comes, he's coming, Revelation 19.16, on a white horse to conquer and make war on his enemies. Doesn't that give you hope? Doesn't that excite you a little bit? Citizens of heaven then anchor their hope in Jesus' return. They live according to what will happen to them in the future, not on what's currently going on around them. There's a lot going on around us today in our culture, isn't there? There's a lot of things that if we read the headlines and look at the news, we could say, ooh, doesn't look good for us here. Ooh, that's going to pay bad things down the road. There's a whole lot of that. But citizens of heaven are able to step back from the hand-wringing and say, you know, this may be our earthly destiny, but we have something far, far greater. Jesus is coming. And this hope in Christ's second coming is so certain that it is guaranteed. So believe it. Jesus will return, and he will second transform our bodies the Christian faith is distinct from all other world religions in that it believes in the physical resurrection of the dead and the glorification of the body. We don't believe in reincarnation. We don't believe in, in annihilation, which is after death everybody just disappears and there's no more existence. We believe that each person will be bodily raised and sent to either heaven in a glorified body or to hell for those who do not know Christ. And this is one of these key passages that teach this doctrine. And at first glance, what Paul says seems pretty straightforward in verse 21. Who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body? Seems pretty straightforward, and that's true. But what Paul does here is brilliant. He has selected words in this little phrase that link this verse back to the actions of Christ in chapter 2. In in the well-known Christ hymn is what it's called, in verses 6 through 11, Paul describes, and this is probably a very early church hymn that was sung or, or a confession that was read, Christ lowered himself to the point of death, even the death on a cross, and then was raised, and someday he will be the conqueror of all nations. Paul, right here in this verse, in chapter 3, verse 20, uses words that link back to those verses. You say, well, that's kind of cool, but what's the big deal? Well, there are two huge implications. First, our salvation, past, present, and future, depends entirely on what Jesus accomplished through his life and death. Everything about us ties back to his condescension, death, resurrection, and ascension. Everything about us. Because we are united to him. We are in him. The second major implication is that Christ's humble life and sacrificial death then makes a way for us to receive eternal life and have a glorious future like him. One commentator said this, the story of salvation tells us of a great interchange between Christ and us. Christ came to share in our suffering so that we would share in his glory. He has become like us in order to transform us to become like him. What a beautiful hope. In verse 20, Paul uses the word transform, and this isn't the normal word for transform found in the New Testament. 
This word means that our, our bodies will have the form of them changed so that we can resemble Christ. We don't become Christ. We take the form of Christ. Well, back in chapter 2, verse 7, what did Jesus do? He took the form of a bondservant and was made in the likeness of men. You see, Jesus took the form of a servant so that later he can serve us by transforming us to be like him. What does he transform? In verse 20, he transforms our lowly body. That word lowly describes a state of humiliation, right? To be the low rung on the totem pole. In chapter 2, verse 8, Jesus humbled himself. He humbled himself by taking a human body. He humbled himself when he obeyed the Father's will all the way to the point of death, even the most shameful death possible, death on a cross. You see, Jesus came from glory to become lowly and take our flesh and blood so that at his second coming, he will take our humble bodies and turn them into something glorious. Jesus humbled himself to the Father's will and died on the cross so that those who humbly receive him as Savior are elevated and receive eternal life. The word conformed in verse 20 verse 21, excuse me, may be conformed to his glorious body. means to take the shape of, to have the same nature. We will be conformed to Christ's glorious body. How can that happen? Well, because of chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Jesus was in the form of God, but took the form of a servant. He was truly the same nature as God, and he truly became man. This is called the hypostatic union. This is where God became man. Two natures in one person. That's what orthodox teaching has taught for 2,000 years. So though Jesus was in the form of God, he took the form of a servant so that eventually, at his second coming, we can take the form of his glory. The Lord Jesus' life and death not only secured initial redemption for us, it also secures final redemption when we will be transformed finally, completely into his image. The third thing that Jesus will do when he returns to accomplish our final redemption is conquer all things. And this is how the passage ends. According to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself, the same power that he has to transform us, the same power, if you're a believer, that is operative in your life right now through the power of the gospel, is the same power that Jesus will exercise to subdue all of creation, and as Ephesians 1 says, unite it unto himself. This is the same event that the end of the Christ hymn in, 2, 11 through, in chapter 2, verses 10 and 11 talks about when it says that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Every knee will bow. Of those in heaven, those on earth, those under the earth, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And this isn't just some hope that, well, maybe this world will work out this way and we'll stumble into it. This hope is certain. It will happen. It is as good as guaranteed because Christ says, I will come again. Jesus will be exalted. The entire creation will submit to him. The question is not if we will bow, but at what point in our lives will we bow? When will we bow? Will we bow in salvation now while we have time? Or will we wait till that day when we finally recognize our fatal mistake and say, I wish I had confessed earlier? Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that 
my fellow brothers and sisters, my, my fellow heavenly citizens, that is what we wait for. To enter heaven at the end of our race and exclaim, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life. Let us hope in our glorious future and let our identity as citizens of heaven inspire us to live for our real home. Thanks for listening to sermons from the pulpit at Red Rocks Baptist Church. For more information about our church, visit our website at www.redrocksbaptistchurch.org or follow us on Instagram at Red Rocks Baptist.